Welcome to the Performance Nutrition Podcast. Giving you the latest evidence-based research and cutting-edge insights for elite mental and physical performance. He's connecting you directly with the world's leading experts and coaches. Here's your host, Dr. Bubbs. Hey everyone, this is season five, episode number 12 of the Performance Nutrition Podcast. This is the final episode of season five, and it's an absolute pleasure to have on a pioneer in the field of sports psychology, performance psychology, Dr. Jim Aframau, author of The Champion's Mind, How Great Athletes Think, Train, and Thrive, as well as The Champion's Comeback, The Young Champion's Mind, and his new book, The Leader's Mind. With over 20 years of experience, Dr. Aframau has assisted numerous high school, collegiate, professional athletes across all the major sports in achieving their performance potential. He's a member of the Association for Applied Sports Psychology, the American Counseling Association, and the Arizona Psychoanalytic Society. In this episode, we're going to dive into a lot of different topics, but right off the bat, this idea of bringing the right attitude every day. It sounds easy, but what are some of those roadblocks? He'll talk about strategies to limit negative thoughts and also improve the quality of your thoughts. And when you think about the fact that we've got 60 to 80,000 thoughts a day, that is a powerful, powerful strategy. Jim will also talk about leadership, finding your style, fitting into cultures, and one simple question that you can ask to transform your coaching relationship with your athletes and clients. Before we get rolling, this episode is sponsored by Athlete Evolution, performance nutrition education for strength and conditioning coaches, nutritionists, and practitioners looking to level up their performance nutrition game, expand the breadth of their knowledge so they can make the biggest impact with their athletes and clients. Athlete Evo is excited to announce the new basketball performance nutrition course set to launch at the end of January 2022. The course will be led by expert sport dietitian, formerly the NBA's Atlanta Hawks, Marie Spano, lead sports scientists from Barcelona FC Basketball, Frank Garcia, as well as the mindset side with performance psychologist Dr. Alex Auerbach, who works extensively in sport. You'll be able to connect with experts in the field at the live roundtables and earn CEU credits as well. Similar courses typically cost well over $1,000, and for a fraction of this cost, you can jump on board, connect with some of the top experts in the field, and at the moment, save $100 off that course as well. Head over to athleteevolution.org, that's athleteevolution.org, enter the code BASKETBALL, and you'll secure your spot for the January 24th course. Awesome, let's do this, Season 5, Episode 12, with Dr. Jim Aframat. Enjoy. Jim, really appreciate you uh, carving out some time today. Thanks so much, Mark. It's great to be with you. Listen, I'd love to start this conversation by kind of going back to the beginning and, and picking your brain on what really ignited that that passion or that desire to pursue the career in uh, sports psychology. Yeah, so I grew up in a family uh, that was very active. And so we would, you know, mountain climb and non-technical rock climb and um played a bunch of variety of different sports. And uh, my father even did master's track um, late in life. And so that was nice. fun going to going to those meets and seeing some of the older guys that still had something to give. And that was a lot of fun. But what I realized early on was that the biggest battle that I had to face was an internal battle. And, you know, if I can't beat myself or overcome myself, how am I going to beat you know, this other opponent or this other team? And, you know, it's those small battles that really fascinated me, you know, in terms of just, you know, either getting too anxious or getting too distracted or getting too discouraged if things weren't going well. 
And I never found really any good satisfactory answers to my questions. So, you know, Hey, I get nervous before I compete. What can I do? And, you know, coaches and, you know, my parents and others would say, Oh, don't worry about that. <laughs> like, and this was back in the day to, you know, to be fair to everyone. Uh, so when I started learning about sports psychology, I was always interested in psychology and what makes us tick. And, um, and, and when I started learning more about sports psychology, it's like, wow, there's a discipline. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, you know, that we're not just born with confidence or without confidence, but we can learn these characteristics of champions. That really got me excited. And um, I've been enjoying the ride ever since. Yeah, that's, that's fascinating. It's amazing to see how far things have come. I imagine you must be astounded as well in the last uh, 20, 30, 40 years, how, how far things have come on the performance side and how the mental game is really where, where everyone's main focus is now. I mean, sleep's been sort of mine for a lot of its benefits and nutrition. Great to see over the last decade as well. And um, in your first book, The Champion's Mindset, I like how you open up the book with a, a terrific quote from Peyton Manning about attitude and how you know, it sounds quite simple. The attitude that you bring to a situation is going to really determine success or failure. And while it seems simple, it's not really easy, is it? Can you talk a bit about, you know, how attitude is playing such a big role and maybe some of the roadblocks that, that prevent everyone from just bringing the right attitude? Yeah. Well, uh, one of the things that's important to mention is that we all have a negativity bias. So Hmm. for purposes of survival, uh, we're always kind of looking for what could go wrong or what isn't going well. And most of us have anywhere from 60 to 80,000 thoughts per day. I've heard different estimates, but um, the point is we have a lot of thoughts. And what we do know about those thoughts is that most of them are negative. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, the brain is operating under the, you know, a safety first principle. And so that might keep us alive, but it's not going to necessarily make us successful. So it actually does take a lot of work and effort to think like a champion, to have a great attitude, even when things aren't going well. And I do love the idea that anyone could have a great, great attitude when things are going well. You know, what champions try to have is a great attitude when things aren't yet going well. Um, and so that does take some, you know, effort and work. And um, why that's important is because the mind, you know, controls the body. And I like to say that you know, the, your muscles are always listening to what your mind says. So even though most of those thoughts are going to be negative, we do have the option of whether to ignore those thoughts, you know, kind of in a mindfulness approach yeah. or in more of a sports psychology, cognitive behavioral approach is challenge those thoughts and replace them with more productive thoughts. Yeah. I was going to say, I mean, obviously, as you mentioned, we're naturally, we're defaulting to these negative thoughts. And so, you know, how do we start to develop some strategies to get away from the you know, don't hit this in the water, don't miss this free throw. Um, you know, obviously when we think about the future, it's easier to promote that sort of anxiety. So are there initial places to start to start to combat those types of strategies? I think a really good place to start is to think about, you know, when I'm performing my best, when I'm really rolling, you know, when, you know, maybe in the zone or maybe some sort of micro zone, what am I thinking and how am I feeling? And then compare and contrast that to, okay, when I'm really struggling or I've hit a wall in my performance, what am I thinking and how am I feeling? And then notice the difference between those thoughts and feelings. And then, okay, um, let's rehearse, let's work on the thoughts that work for me. And then, you know, especially when those negative thoughts pop up, having a game plan in terms of how to tackle those thoughts. Um, So for example, uh, one of the top softball players in the country, uh, that I'm working with, um, she was really struggling with 
you know, really tough conditioning in her, mm -hmm. uh, you know, with her college program. And, you know, she wasn't used to it at the high school level. So it was a big adjustment moving up to the, the college level. For sure. And so she was having thoughts like, maybe I don't belong. Maybe I'm not good enough. Can I really do this? And, you know, her confidence took a big hit in her conditioning. And so what we talked about is, okay, let's replace those with more powerful and productive thoughts. So she came up with, I'm not alone. I can do this. I am strong. So mm -hmm. I'm not alone. I'm with my teammates. You know, we're all in it together. And then I can do this. I am strong. And she kept repeating those thoughts. And then she got back to me with a text message saying, I crushed the workout today. And, you know, and <laughs> nice. then she was off and running after that. Yeah. I mean, it's amazing how much obviously athletes are working on their physical games and the mental game being such a key differentiator between winning and losing and how we need to be working more on our mental game and you know whether the strategies are you know is it the self-talk the goal setting the visualization the breathing techniques i mean there are a plethora of different techniques is it really context driven in terms of what that individual needs are there certain starting points for people with their you know coach or athlete listening in you know i i like starting with a like a psychological framework or or a, you know a particular mindset which is think gold and never settle for silver. And so you got to start with, you know, do I really want to see how good I can be? Mm -hmm. And how badly do I really want that? And once you decide to go after big things in life, and you know, you have big ideas and big goals, then it's like, okay, I need to start looking at everything that comes, you know, my way as a challenge to meet rather than a threat to avoid. So mm. when you're really thinking gold in your life and wanting to live a gold medal life, um, you know, you have to attack everything <laughs> instead of, you know, run for cover. And so mm -hmm. I like to start with that. And it's kind of having a predator mindset or, you know, like, yep. you know, a champion mindset or attitude. And then all the skills and strategies help to support that in terms of building our confidence, our concentration, our composure and commitment. Gotcha. And are there certain aspects with, with certain groups of athletes that tend to be the areas that we need to focus on, or does it become very individual to the person of those? particular traits that you're trying to support? Well, what I've found, which is really cool is, you know, athletes are so different in terms of body type, uh, mm -hmm. or maybe even age, but high performance is high performance in terms of thinking like a champion. So there's a lot more similarities. Uh, you know, if I'm working with a champion in one sport and a champion in a different sport, yeah. it could be a football player and a gymnast, then, you know, maybe it might look on the surface. So uh, to me, a lot of it does go back to self-talk. Uh, you know, are you being your own best friend or are you your own worst enemy, you know, during the day in terms of your preparation? And then of course on game day when it's time to compete. Yeah, that's a great point. And I think, uh, you know, my, my generation was sort of the Bobby Knight, uh, a lot of, you know, the coaches getting on the players and, and, you know, they, they would lift you up as well. But I think a lot of those patterns can get ingrained and, and people with just kind of to your point using that same sort of self-talk. Um, but perhaps in your own life or a coach's life or an athlete, there's no coach there to actually lift you up like they might've done in the past. So can you talk about some of those, those loops that we might get stuck in and how that can really start to derail, uh, you know, someone's mental game? Yeah, it's really easy. You know, again, it's just uh, kind of garbage in garbage out. We tend to get stuck with, you know, negative uh, repetitive thoughts. Um, so we might, you know, have a tough game and, and we underperform and we just really start to beat ourselves up. You know, I suck. I'm terrible. I let the team down. Um, and even though that feels a little bit good in the sense that it shows that I care and, you yeah. know, and I'm not happy with settling for less than my best, 
it really just eats away at our core confidence. And so you really need to nip that in the bud and say, you know what, what did I do well? Give myself credit for that. What can I do better? And now that I know that, and sometimes it's just a small adjustment or, you know, a little correction, I'm going to really start, uh, you know, putting my best foot forward by making that correction. So now I'm a better player. And so it's looking at kind of like when I do well, give myself credit. That's like me to do that, you know, Mm -hmm. reinforce your self-image. When you don't do well, that's not like me to do that. What did I learn? What's going to help me next time? And so then a loss becomes some something more than just a stumbling block. It becomes actually a stepping stone. And what's really cool about that is then you can be more driven. So I've had athletes that say, you know, at the, at the top level say, when I win, I'm happy. And when I lose, I'm more driven. (laughs) So it's kind of, you can't lose either way. You know, if you have that mindset. Oh, that's tremendous. And, you know, doc, when we think about some of the athletes, I'm thinking a lot of basketball players now, especially because they come into the league at such a young age. And of course at Canada basketball, we get them 13 years old and we see this progression, which is great to actually be there for that whole progression. Um, But a lot of them are obviously succeeding at a high clip the whole time. I mean, there's no real you know, there's challenges, but there are no real fundamental challenges, maybe until they reach this, this really high level, where now they're not the star player, they're not getting all the minutes, they're at the end of the bench. And this might actually be, you know, despite best intentions along the way of being able to put in some of these skills, mental skills, it might actually be the first time where they really realize, I've got to, you know, I've got to do something, or or maybe they don't, but it's a situation in which it's going to really be useful for them now you know, how is, how do you navigate that when you're, you know, particularly if the athlete maybe isn't the one to realize that they need that mental training, they might be a little bit on the fence or unfortunately some of those athletes that are a bit standoffish, but we know that this is the thing that's really separating them from, from being able to realize, like you say, they're, you know, realizing their potential. Yeah, it's really tricky because uh, for athletes that are not quite the best at what they do, um, you know, they realize, look, I need to be mentally tougher or, you know, I can't get away with making too many mistakes, mental mistakes out there on the field or on the court. So they could be a little bit more open-minded about what do you got for me today? You know, Mm -hmm. if they see me, whereas some of the superstars are like, Hey, I didn't need this to get to this point. So I don't need it now. And, you know, my attitude is what got you here isn't necessarily what's going to keep you here. It's not a race just to get to this level. It's a race to stay at this level and see how good you can be. 100%. But I, I, I do think that, uh, you know, sports psychology is definitely becoming sexier and, you know, kind of more in vogue. And, mm-hmm. um, and I think that's important, especially mental health as well. And, you know, I, I have a doctorate in sports psychology, but I'm also a licensed mental, count, uh, a mental health counselor. And so sometimes athletes might come to see me for personal issues and yeah. then say, well, what do you got for me, you know, in terms of my game or vice versa? Uh, we're working on their mental game. And then it's like, man, you know, my parents are going through a divorce or, you know, I'm dealing with some substance abuse challenges. And so I really like working with the total athlete. Um, What's really helped me is word of mouth. So a lot of the pro athletes I work with have said, Hey, uh, I have a teammate that could really benefit from talking with you. And that really opens the doors for that other athlete to say, well, Hey, if you're working with my teammate, then, you know, this might not be so bad. 100%. 100%. I mean, it is amazing, isn't it? How if the, if the leader or somebody in that position on a team organization takes that step, then all of a sudden, it's a lot easier for everybody else. And I'm, I'm fascinated by this question around sort of mental performance and mental health, especially with the rise of awareness around mental health. You know, where, where do you see that line around, you know, 
you know, we want to support an athlete's physical health to let them recover and perform their best. And that's something we're doing more of with sleep and nutrition, et cetera. And as we move towards mental performance, you know, that mental health aspect and all the different demands on athletes, whether it's, you know, emotional life, family life, all the social media, you know, where's that sort of line for you? Or is there a definition around mental health to mental performance? Could, could you share some insights there? Yeah, it's, it's actually a pretty blurry line because at the end of the day, we're, you know, we're, we're a yeah. whole person and, but, you know, traditionally, at least I looked at it as, you know, uh, are you able to separate what's going on off the court with what you're doing on the court? So kind of have a mental locker when you show up to the court, uh, you know, or show up to practice, it's like, Hey, I'm going to put all my personal stuff in my mental locker and be here, you know, hundred percent focused on what I need to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, or, you know, uh, the other way around, if I have a tough game, uh, going through a rough patch in my performance, uh, am I, am I able to kind of leave that behind in my actual physical locker, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And then when it's time to, you know, focus on school or family or other responsibilities, I'm able to do that 100%. So, um, you know, that's ideal, but, but I think that's kind of hard to do because, you know, wherever we are, there we are, you know, in terms of all the stuff going on in our lives. And, you know, it's, it's nice in theory to be able to compartmentalize, but, you know, so I really think that um, it's important to have a go-to person. Uh, when I was uh, working for the San Francisco Giants baseball organization, there was a phrase in the organization, but also throughout Major League Baseball, which was never suffer alone. Yeah. And I think just sometimes that having that person that, hey, man, this is what's going on on the field. This is what's going on off the field. I just have someone I could talk about those things with, get a little bit of clarity, learn some skills and strategies. That could be a huge difference maker. Yeah, hundred percent. And you know, when you look at organizations, would you think that there's a, you know, just brainstorming here of a role? You imagine if people are really dealing with significant mental health issues. Obviously, reaching out to the team psychologist is one thing, but there are potential conflicts there. I guess from the player or even the coach thinking, you know, how will this affect my playing time or, or my status? Is this where we need sort of third parties to come in to really be able to support? You know. Uh, teams and and coaches and athletes. Yeah. I think there's pluses and minuses in terms of having someone on board because then they're around you, you know, you, you could, you know, usually if you're a pro athlete or a college student athlete, you're pretty busy. And so, uh, so you don't have huge blocks of time. So having someone right there available when you need to speak to them is important. Um, And, you know, just to be transparent though, on the other hand, it is tough to you know, to kind of, you know, go see someone within the organization when people could see you walking into that person's office. And it's like, well, what are they going in there for? Mm -hmm. You know, what's that all about? And, you know, can I really trust this professional that they're not going to share it with the coaches? And, um, and so it is a, it is kind of a dance, you know, in terms of trying to figure all that out. I've actually had athletes that have reached out to me from other organizations, obviously, um, um, and said, you know, yeah, we got someone, but I'd rather meet with you. And then it was interesting when I did leave the San Francisco Giants baseball organization, some of the players that I never really worked with, I was friendly with said, Hey, I'd love to meet with you. And I'm like thinking, why didn't you meet with me when I was there? So I think they were just more private, you know, in terms of what they wanted. I mean, it's great to see athletes actually making that uh, first step these days, isn't it? Whereas it feels like a generation ago, you know, that would have been much less likely, no? Yeah, they're, they're, well, the old joke on the PGA Tour is that, um, you know, 25 years ago, if you met with a sports psychologist, you're pretty weird. But <laughs> nowadays, if you're not working with a sports psychologist, you're pretty weird. And yeah, so, exactly right. But you're, you're absolutely right. A lot of athletes are reaching out to me now saying, hey, 
things are going pretty well. I just want to see how good I can get at my sport. And so it's, you know, nothing necessarily, they're not in a slump or nothing's necessarily going wrong. It's just, I want to leave no stone unturned and see how great I can be. And I know the mental game's important. Uh, whereas early on in my career was that, yeah, I'm going through a slump or I'm injured or I'm depressed, those kind of things. Yeah. It must be quite uh, satisfying because it's always, it's easier, isn't it? To build that foundation and everything that you really want to implement when someone's in that place, rather than just waiting until whether it's their diet or their exercise or their mindsets in a slump. And then we've got to try to use some of those acute strategies just to get out of the hole. Right. Yeah. And that's actually something that I hear a lot from, from athletes that finally do come in to see me at uh, an NFL player recently reach out and, you know, I said, how long were you thinking about contacting me? And he said, uh, <laughs> several months. And, you know, yeah. that's not uncommon, you know, before we finally pull the trigger, but he did, he did pull the trigger. And I thought that was great. And after the first session, he's like, man, I feel like, you know, just a weight's been lifted off my shoulders, just having someone that, you know, that's kind of neutral that kind of, you know, has worked mm -hmm. with other pro athletes that, that understands me just being able to talk to you about all these kind of things, all the challenges and expectations and pressures and, um, so I really do like the proactive approach and, and I, and that's why the younger, the better for me in terms of working with student athletes, it's, uh, because a lot of times what I would see is it would be a college student athlete at the end of the first year. And it's like, man, I've really hit a wall this year. And after the first couple of sessions, they're like, man, I wish I started this in high school. So that when I got to college, I hit the ground running instead of man, you know, like I really took a hit with my confidence. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, uh it's great to see that that shifts happening. And, um, you know, it's interesting. You talk about high expectations, your new book, you know, the leader's mind, how great leaders prepare, perform and prevail. Um, you talk about high expectations that we face, not just in the performance realm, but like we talked about before, whether it's the workplace at home. Um, and so how do we start to start to change the way that we're processing all these things that are happening to us to be able to you know, to be able to lead at the workplace in our performance, but also at home, because it's very, there's sort of different arenas, if you will, right? Yeah, you know, it, it's uh, leadership has never been more important. And especially the younger generation, uh, you know, they want you to get to know them, they, you know, they expect you to be emotionally intelligent, versus maybe, you know, when I, at least when I was younger, it was more prescriptive. Leadership was more prescriptive. Here's what I want you to do because it's going to work for you. <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. versus now it's more inclusive in terms of, you know, engaging with the, you know, with, with the athletes or, you know, with, with your family members or others and saying, you know, Hey, what are you thinking? Or how are you feeling? And mm -hmm. uh, making it more of a team approach. And so uh, that's definitely the way things are going in the workplace and in the sports world. Uh, I've definitely seen that shift myself in terms of working with coaches. Um, and, and this is so important because, you know, especially in the work world, um, you know, what's the saying that, you know, you know, people don't leave bad jobs, they leave bad bosses. So you, yeah, know, you yeah, definitely want for sure. And, and then, you know, research also shows that the average American worker, uh, you know, probably for any worker, you know, uh, it's uh, their engagement level is only about 50% at work. Uh, you know, they're, they're kind of disengaged. Uh, mm -hmm. Maybe they don't feel included. They don't feel there's any ownership on their part. Um, and so having a really good leader that sets the right tone is, is, is really everything. Absolutely. I mean, you opened the book with uh, talking about where to start with leadership. And, you know, it's, again, I think it might surprise people this idea of being a good person first. And so, you know, how, how do our values and being a good person actually, you know, enable us to, to really be good leaders? 
Yeah, I mean, one of the things that we really need to do is, you know, ask ourselves if we're in, in a leadership position, and it, it doesn't have to even be a formal leadership position, but what I want to work for me today, or what I want to, you know, if I'm an athlete, you know, if I'm coaching athletes, what I want to play for me today. <laughs> and so, you know, and so I think part of being a good person is having everyone's best interest in, in mind and at heart. And um, and so a lot of that falls under, I guess you would say servant leadership in terms of, you know, we're all in this together trying to do something special. And I care about you, not just in terms of your production, but who you are as a person. And, um, uh, you know, and I have, you know, I'm going to be looking out for you, I have your back and there's going to be times where I challenge you. There's going to be times I support you. And that's just kind of like also being like a good parent as well. Mm -hmm. Um, one of my favorite stories from Steve Kerr, who's also featured in the book, is when he took over the job with the Golden State Warriors, he called up all the players and actually went out to go see all of them. And, you know, it's easier to do with a smaller team like in basketball versus, yeah. let's say, in football, football or other sports. 53 right? guys. Exactly. So, but he ended up going and visiting and, hey, where do you like to go to dinner? What do you like to do away from basketball? Tell me about your family and friends. And, um, you know, I think that really set the right tone that, uh, you know, I'm here to help you reach your goals. Uh, I'm not just here to get something from you. Yeah, it's interesting when we look at, you know, teams like the Spurs, let's say, a few years back when they had Ginobili and Parker and, and going out to dinners together was sort of the, you know, often hear that talked about. And of course, over dinner, you talk about family and friends and, and aspirations and whatnot. Well, we, we hear the word culture thrown around so much. And of course, every organization has, you know, has their own culture and wants to build a culture. But there are sort of very few that really have that ingrained culture. Um, you know, is it as, as simple as going out to dinner together? Or, or how, how can we really start to form some of these bonds that the, that the athletes or the people that are working for us really know that we're, we do have their best interest? Yeah, one of my favorite examples of what you're talking about comes from Paul Ratcliffe, and he's the head coach for Stanford Cardinal Women's Soccer, uh, the winningest coach, men or women uh, teams in Stanford history. And he's won three national championships, you know, a ton of awards, you know, individual awards and also team awards. And he, he just has a great, uh, you know, attitude about culture. He says it's not Paul Radcliffe's culture, it's Stanford, you know, it's the Stanford Cardinal Women's uh, soccer culture. Mm -hmm. And so one of the ways that he makes sure that it's that way is he'll ask the players, you know, Hey, let's write down on a card or talk, you know, talk with each other. What's important to you, you know, is, is, you know, uh, being competitive important is, you know, is, is, you know, uh, training to the max important to you, you know, what's important to you. And we're going to make sure those are our values together. And, you know, how can we encourage each other to stick to those values and principles, and then, you know, maybe even enforce them as well. So I really like that he takes kind of like almost a, a bottom up approach instead of like, okay, here are my values, you guys got to <laughs> follow, follow along with what I want, versus, hey, what's important to you? And how can we make sure that we live those values? That's tremendous. And, you know, when we think about different environments in the book, you talk about a lot of different environments, competitive environments, like medicine and surgery. And of course, Traditionally, a lot of male egos, a lot of swearing and potentially throwing of things, which you mentioned in the book. Um, but you give it through the eye, you talk about it through the eyes of a female surgeon. And so this notion of really trying to find your true self and, of course, your own leadership style, you know, how much do we blend into a certain environment versus starting to layer in our own self into that. Can you touch on that? 
Yeah, it could definitely be tricky because on the one hand, you want to be really authentic and true to yourself. On the other hand, you know, as part of a culture, there's a little bit of give and take. And Mm -hmm. so one of the chapters features uh, Katrina Furlick, and uh, she's a neurosurgeon and also co-founder of Health Prize Technologies. So she's she had this kind of career change where she had a startup and, you know, wanted to make sure in terms of extra or in terms of uh, medicine adherence and so forth. And, mm-hmm. uh, but she yeah, she talked about that a lot of the early surgeons that she came across that were women almost felt like they had to act more manly uh, mm-hmm. to fit in. And she said that was kind of off-putting because it's like, you know, it, it didn't feel authentic to them, but it was understandable that they felt that they had to act that way. So she said, you know, kind of like, you know, not necessarily be too thin skinned when you're working with males that are like, Oh, you must be the nurse, you know? And uh, even though that obviously doesn't feel good and it's not a nice thing to be considered that, but Hey, I could show you that I have a sense of humor. I could show you that I could fit in. And then a lot of those people that maybe would look at her differently because she was a woman would eventually come around. And some of those were from other cultures or other countries. So uh, she said, you know, make sure that you have a sense of humor and that, you know, if you show, if you do a good job, people are going to come around, but she wanted to be, you know, she didn't want to feel like I need to be that pound the desk type of leader, you know, in the operating room, I want to be more cooperative. And so she was able to really find that sweet spot for herself. Yeah, and she talks about a lot of the different styles, obviously being a surgeon and, and working under, learning from uh, the leads and, and, of course, the different styles that there would be of, of people who sort of commanded as we would traditionally, whilst others were more inclusive and allowing, you know, the, the younger surgeons to be able to do more within that. Um, you know, we talk about how today there's is a bit more inclusivity. I imagine we still need to sort of be true to ourselves and how we how we would typically lead or how much are we obviously with our group that are in front of us today. I'm just thinking now of you know our young kids at Canada Basketball or some of the younger athletes I have and how we talked about how they want to be more inclusive. And, and you know, I guess where's that line between here, you know, here are some of the things that we need here are some of the fundamentals that we've got to cover. But to your point, we you know, what's important to you and how can we support that? Yeah, you know, it, it reminds me of uh, self-disclosure in terms of the counseling work I, I would do, um, which is, you know, it's fine to share stuff about yourself, but you, you know, as long as you're doing it for the benefit of, <laughs> you know, of your client, you're not just like trying to unload your own stress <laughs> yeah. on the client. But so, you know, I think it's important to be authentic, but, you know, as a professional as well, but I think communication is key. Um, I've been a part of a lot of organizations where communication was, wasn't too good. And mm. uh, so to me, it, 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 that's the starting point. And all the leaders featured in, in the Leader's Mind book are, are great communicators. And it doesn't yeah. mean that they have to give all these rah-rah speeches. It's just that they uh, communicate how they're feeling or what they're thinking, or they show an interest in, again, what, what others are thinking and feeling. Uh, one little tip that I like to give to coaches is to ask your players, what do I need to know about you as your coach? Uh, so I can be the best coach for you and maybe write that on an index card. And mm-hmm. it's amazing how many times coaches said, you know, that sounds so obvious. I, n- I can't believe I never thought of that. Yeah. And they would get back stuff that would surprise them. Some of it, you know, yeah, I expected that from that player, but sometimes it'd be like, wow, that player really wants me to coach him hard or, mm-hmm. Hey, that player really prefers you know, more positive reinforcement, I thought they were the opposite. So I think that's really important. I also ask athletes to go up to your coaches and say, you know, what do you expect from me? Or what can I expect from you? And so have those conversations. 
um, a lot of misunderstandings happen when communication isn't there. So I remember one soccer player I worked with, uh, she wasn't playing much. And, and I said, well, how, how well do you know coach? And she said, well, he doesn't like me. And I'm like, well, how do you know that? And anyway, I encouraged her to get to know him better. They went on a big road trip and she sat next to him on the airplane Mm-hmm. And just, you know, hey, coach, tell me about yourself. And here's a little bit about myself. And they just kind of became, you know, fast friends, you know, over the trip. And then all of a sudden she started playing more. But she's <laughs> like, man, he's such a cool guy. I didn't realize how much we had in common. And yeah. he assumed that, you know, I wasn't happy on the team where I assumed that he didn't want me on the team. But once they got through that, all of a sudden, you know, it was a, t- a true win-win. Yeah, it is amazing how communication can be a, a major stumbling block, even at the highest levels. And when you talk about things like body language, you know, I'm thinking of different athletes. I'm, I'm actually first thinking of golfer. I mean, Rory McIlroy sort of seems like the most obvious example of when he's playing well, he's just strutting down the fairway. And, you know, years ago when he's winning by eight or 10 shots and it just even the competition could see that. And it was almost like there's no ch- we got no chance here. He's going to he's going to win by a mile. When he wasn't playing well, uh, you know, he, he the shoulders would slump and he'd be sort of dragging the putter behind him and these types of things. And, you know, he's even mentioned this even recently with his obviously still incredible successes, but to his level, wanting more majors is obviously, you know, a high bar. Um, can you talk to this the body language story? Because it is it is amazing how, how our body is impacting our mind and, and vice versa. Yeah, it's such a good point that you're making because, you know, you could almost look at the four wheels of a sports car, you know, in the sense that you have kind of mind, emotion, uh, physiology, and then more kind of like, you know, body language or posture, and Mm -hmm. they all influence each other. So, you know, as an example, if you put a big frown on your face and look down at your feet, it's hard to feel happy. Mm -hmm. And you know, versus if you looked up with a big smile on your face and kind of had your hands up in the air, it's, it's hard to feel sad. So all these systems are kind of working with each other. And so sometimes we need to act our way in a, into a certain way of feeling versus, you know, maybe feel ourselves into a certain way of acting. Um, so I like the idea of act as if. So when you're not playing well, act as if you're about to turn things around or act as if your spirit can't be broken. Um, And, you know, I like the saying that uh, body language is a billboard for your mental toughness. And so when your body language is down, you're telling the other team, beat me now. You're saying, I can't do this. And then you're also giving the message to your teammates that you can't count on me. So to me, body language is one of those things where, uh, man, you really got to act like a champion. And so I'll encourage athletes, you know, especially practice this in your preparation, but Um, you know, walk with a little bit of a swagger or strut um, when you're not feeling your best, make that a habit. And um, so walk like a champion, even when you have doubts, or especially when you have doubts or fears. Yeah. And there's an interesting sort of middle ground of we've had athletes where they're sort of performing well, but their body language is very neutral in a sense that even the coaches will comment on almost like your story previously about the soccer player of, you know, how much do they want to be here? How much do they really want this? Are they really you know, it doesn't look like they're giving a hundred percent even in practice. Whereas, you know, we can tell even by the, you know, the internal physiological metrics that, that they are. Um, and so how do you give suggestions on how a coach might broach that subject? Cause it's almost like for some of these players, they just need to show more better body language, let's say, because sometimes these are those players that are, you know, not, not necessarily starters. They're on the, they're on the bench or maybe 
potentially not on the team anymore. And there's a, there's a fine line. And it seems like this is actually playing a big role into terms of how their personality is, is impacting the team or their the perception from the, from the staff of their personality impacting the rest of the players. Yeah, that's definitely one area where there could definitely be miscommunication. Um, you know, I've had athletes that are more introverted. And mm -hmm. so, you know, coach or teammates might read into that, like, oh, they don't care. They're yeah. not interested. They don't want to be here when they do. It's just, they're not as demonstrative in, you know, in terms of their body language. Um, I do think that you have to do businesses, you know, businesses being done. So, you know, if you're part of a team, I think you have to challenge yourself to, you know, even though it might not be your personality to, to give the team what it needs. And that might be being a little bit more loud and proud in practice and in games. Um, you know, I like John Calipari at Kentucky basketball. He'll tell his guys like, Hey, you don't have to talk outside of practice. You know, if you're a quiet guy, be quiet outside of practice. But when you come into practice, you better be loud. You better be proud. You better be talkative because we need that as a team. Mm -hmm. uh, so, but I do think that, in, you know, for, for coaches or staff, when they see a player like that, you know, assume that they're coming from a place of maybe they're a little shy or a little introverted rather than, you know, we tend to make these uh, negative attributions, mm -hmm. you know, versus trying to understand them first. Like, hey, you know, it seems like, you know, you're, you're a little bit more quiet with your body language. Um, you know, what's that all about? You know, are, are, you, are you tend to be more introverted or more shy? Um, you know, how can I help you to bring that out so yeah. that we show that great attitude that I know you have inside of you uh, versus, hey, you know, shape up, you know, like, you know, yeah. kind of yelling at them because then they feel shamed, embarrassed. And, you know, and and then you're kind of coming from a negative that's not going to yeah. help them. Yeah, no, for sure. And it reminds me of uh, the idea of the, of the player not giving it all in the training that I think it was Maurice Green quote around, you know, on race day, on competition day, acting like you're the number one, you're the best. But on, when we're training, we've got to act like we're, we're, we're number two or number three. We've got to really be able to bring that. Can you talk about that shift in mindset of, of how the training mindset, which often, in, you know, in nutrition, we talk about even training nutrition versus game day nutrition. And it's a similar theme in terms of mindset. No. Yeah. I mean, you know, practice is one of those things where, um, you know, how do I get one day better today? And, and you need to find a way to do that. Again, some guys are a little more introverted. Some guys are a little more extroverted. So when I was with the San Francisco giants, it was interesting about half the team, uh, the guys who kind of, you know, like, let's say on the, on, a, on the plane or the bus, they would kind of be just kind of in their own little world, just kind of real quiet, mm -hmm. uh, maybe on their phone or reading a book. And then the other half of the team would be playing cards and really loud and obnoxious and, mm -hmm. you know, and having fun and telling jokes and kind of ribbing each other. But uh, yeah, I mean, I think that, uh, you know, in terms of practices versus game day, ideally you want to practice the way you want to play and then play the way that you want to practice. Uh, I think the biggest mistake that the average athlete have has is, you know, practice doesn't really matter, you know, which, which I would say, yeah, but it still counts. And uh, yeah, for sure, but, but um, you know, if, if you're waiting to turn it on during, you know, you know, flipping the switch on game day, lots of luck because, you know, you've kind of practiced not thinking like a champion or training like a champion. So uh, to me, you really want to have the attitude that, you know, practice is the big day. And then, you know, if I practice like a champion, then it's easy to go out there and just play like a champion when it matters most. Absolutely. And, you know, in today's environment with, again, thinking sort of basketball, a lot of training load and, and brings to mind the Allen Iverson quote about practice and of course agree 100 with all the greats like the michael jordans and the tom brady's and the intensity they would bring they bring to practice to be able to be exact and to be able to be champions 
you know, today we see obviously a lot of players doing that as well. We also see this sort of training load and, and, and guys maybe going through the paces a little bit in practice, you know, how, how would one start to, you know, that mindset of what you just described, how would we start to instill that the idea that we do still need to bring it in practice because on, on game day, this is, as you mentioned, you're not going to be able to just flip the switch. Yeah, I, I, I love the quote from Kobe Bryant, uh, the one where he said, uh, you know, it's not how many minutes you put into your practice, it's how many minutes your mind is into your practice. Oh, and, nice, yeah. And, and so, you know, it's really about being where your feet are, as we say now. Mm-hmm. Uh, I like to say, be where your fangs are because you want to be, you want to be a predator, you know, yeah. you want to be like, I'm, you know, I love to hunt. I'm here to attack. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, it's really about presence, I would say. Uh, so measure your practices by the degree of presence. So what I would see is that, you know, some players that were pretty good, you know, you can tell that their mind is elsewhere, you know, mm-hmm. d- during different drills or different parts of practice, especially near the end of practice when we kind of just want to get to the finish line. Whereas the better players that I'd be around better athletes, uh, they almost would, you know, have the attitude I'm going to run through the finish line at practice. So I almost want to be man, like when practice ends, I'm going to be surprised because I'm so focused in terms Mm -hmm. of what I'm doing. So to me, it's about, you know, high quality effort rather than just logging minutes, you know, and kind of, you know, you could use it, you could say kind of like garbage time. Yeah, and shifting gears here a little bit, Doc, I know you've got uh, kids at home and I've got three young girls and this idea of young athletes and how we can support building a strong mindsets and kids, not just to make them great athletes, but also, you know, life skills. And, you know, you talk about the idea of commenting on, you know, your, your child, your kid's attitude, their effort, but trying to avoid some of these sort of technical or tactical suggestions, which you know, being from Canada, ice hockey, this is a lot of hockey moms and dads giving suggestions out there. You know, why is that? Well, I think it's important to, you know, number one is realize how hard the game is. Um, I was just out in Detroit working with Honey Baked uh, Hockey Club. Uh, Mm -hmm. I think it's the biggest hockey club in the U.S. And uh, so we did some parent workshops and, you know, we're talking about before the game, Uh, you know, not a lot of instruction, uh, because, you know, if someone was telling me before I did something like, Hey, remember this or remember that I'm thinking, well, do they even trust me or believe in me? (laughs) You know, so that would kind of hurt my confidence or just fill my mind up. And I just be this kind of bloated bobblehead of information. Mm -hmm. So thumbs up, you know, pat on the back, you know, like, um, you know, just a little bit of, you just, you know, like, Hey, you know, go out there and do what you do. And I'm going to have fun watching it during the game, compete against other parents to see who could have the most fun, you know, trust that your kid's going to be okay. And if there's a little bit of adversity, great. You know, it's, it's an opportunity for them to kind of develop some of that mental muscle. And then after the game, um, you know, that car ride home is, you know, that that's where, you know, Hey, maybe we'll save the analysis till later and just, Hey, I love watching you play. I'm so proud of you. What was, you know, your favorite part of the game, that kind of stuff. But Um, I do think that, you know, one of the things I like to say is let the coaches be the coaches in terms of the instruction, Mm -hmm. uh, and you're there for support and encouragement. Um, but I do think that, uh, you know, kids can pick up a lot from the mental game in terms of, you know, the breathing, the body language, gratitude, you know, what were, what are you grateful for? What are you thankful for on your team? Um, all these mental skills and strategies, you know, goal setting, visualization, 
uh, they could pick up these at a young age. And what's great, and I always love to hear this from student athletes is, man, this really helps me in the classroom or this really mm -hmm. helps me at work. This helps me in other areas of my life. So I would say is, you know, there's a little bit of a, uh, you know, concern that, well, you know, with parents or others that, you know, you don't want to start kids too young with the mental game. Whereas actually it probably should be the core of their game when they're young, yeah. because these truly are life skills and it's not to make them more professional. It's to give, it's the equip them with the, you know, the know-how and the skills to really be resilient, mentally tough, and not only to play better, but to have more fun. Yeah. That emotional resilience, the mental toughness, um, you know, where's a place to start really with kids? Would it be around the breathing or the gratitude as some simple ways to just begin that process? Yeah, I have a, a great example from my own family. Uh, so uh, I have a 10 year old daughter and when she was about two, she was having a temper tantrum. And, uh, you know, I'm kind of looking at her while she's on the floor, you know, arms <laughs> yeah. flailing all over. And my wife, who's also a psychologist, but more of a research psychologist, she said, hey, why don't you teach her one of those breathing techniques that you nice. teach your, uh, your athletes? And I, you know, I kind of slap myself on the forehead. And I'm like, you knucklehead. I never even crossed my mind to do that. But yeah. so what I did is I laid down on the floor next to her, put my hand on my belly and kind of, you know, breathe in and out. And and, you know, my hand would go up and down and she looked over at me and started doing the same thing. And then all of a sudden she started calming down and then started giggling. And so she Amazing. learned breathing, you know, kind of deep breathing, uh, it, you know, that relaxation response at such a young age. And then I would see her doing it on her own when things weren't going well for her with, you know, in terms of what she wanted, or maybe she was tired, she would put her hand on her belly and let it go in and out. And so she was really learning how to calm herself. And composure is one of those key mental skills uh, and characteristics of champions. And so I, I love the saying that uh, cool heads win hot games. Nice. Yeah, it is. It is tremendous, isn't it? I mean, kids are like sponges and they really soak a lot of this stuff up. And it's amazing how just those little pieces, you know, here and there can really start to build up in terms of their their own practice. And like you say, it just dovetails into, you know, school and the rest of their lives, right? Yeah. And just even, you know, in terms of just being more mindful in the moment, in terms of, you know, when you're eating, taste your food, when you're drinking a sports drink or, you know, cold, you know, cup of water at practice, you know, between sets or reps, you know, really taste that water and it's refreshing, it's energizing. So being, being more present, I think is, is a big part of all this. Uh, I used to joke around, you know, by asking that students when I worked at Arizona State University, what are you thinking about during practice? And they're, well, I'm thinking about homework. What do you think about doing your, you know, while you're doing your homework? I'm thinking about something that happened earlier today. What are you thinking about when you're in class? I'm thinking about how sore I am, <laughs> you know, like it's, they were hardly ever in the moment. And so, yeah. You know, just being more mindful, I think, is is kind of at the center of the mental game. And then the confidence, concentration, composure, commitment, competitiveness, those other C words are really important. Tremendous. And just to dovetail off that quickly, Doc, I mean, in today's environment of distractions, how do we and not just for kids, obviously for parents and for all of us with the phones and everything else, you know, how do we start to build some of those boundaries or layer in some of these techniques to actually, yeah, stay present, like what stay where our feet are? Yeah, well, most of us, unfortunately, have the attention span of a goldfish, so not very long. And uh, so I think one of the things is that our mind just naturally will drift. Um, you know, we'll tend to whatever we're thinking about or doing in the moment, our mind will start to wander into the past or the future. So I think part of being good at focusing is being really good at refocusing. So noticing that when your mind goes somewhere, and it's, again, it's usually a negative place. Oh, I can't believe I said that earlier today, or I can't believe, you know, I'm 
you know, I'm already sore, practice is going to really hurt later, is just catching that um, and almost kind of like, you know, just thinking of it as a parade that goes by or a leaf on a river that goes by, just let it go. Um, one of the things that was fun when I worked with the softball team and the, and the baseball team at ASU, uh, a lot of the, the athletes love the idea of F and F. And so if they started getting distracted or they made a mistake, uh, they would write F and F on their glove or on their hat, and it stood for forget it and focus. And so, nice. yeah, so we tend to, you know, drift, but so that's where we catch ourselves and say, you know, have a way to say, you know, I'm back. Or I even like the idea, it's a, it's a great tool and a cheap one is to put a rubber band around your uh, wrist. And when you notice that you're really distracted thinking about other things outside of what you're doing in the moment, you snap the rubber band and then literally <laughs> say to yourself, snap back. Yeah. And it's just, you know, kind of be here, be here now. Tremendous. Well, listen, Doc, your, your work's been uh, instrumental in, in my practice and, you know, with Athletes of Canada Basketball and the new book, Leader's Mind, uh, really, really tremendous. And so, you know, where could people stay connected with you and keep up with all your tremendous work? Well, thanks so much, Mark. Uh, I'm on Twitter a lot. I'm at Gold Medal Mind. Uh, my website is goldmedalmind.net. And then on uh, Instagram, I'm newish to Instagram. It's Jim Afromo. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, uh, thanks for having me on today. Uh, the mental game to me is, you know, I'm biased, but it's, it's endlessly fascinating. And, um, you know, I'm really excited about where the field is right now and, um, and, and where it's going to be in a few years from now. It just keeps getting better. 100%. Well, listen, I appreciate the time and we'll definitely include all those links in the show notes. So thanks again, Doc. Thanks, Mark. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Performance Nutrition Podcast. For the full video interview, as well as key clips from this episode, check out our YouTube channel performance nutrition podcast finally if you enjoyed the podcast please rate review and subscribe all that good stuff it's a massive help to the show until next time take care the dr bubs performance podcast endeavors to provide accurate and helpful information to listeners these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional you should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Dr. Bob's performance podcasts.